Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to another episode of Chillin' in the State House, the chillest Kansas government and politics podcast around. I'm Andrew Ball, uh, one half of the state government team at the Topeka Capital Journal, and I'm joined as always by my friend and colleague, Jason Tidd. Jason, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I uh, was resisting the urge to do the interrupting cow knock-knock joke. What's the, what's the, what is this? Uh, knock knock. Who's there? Oh, sorry, I was supposed to say moo soon. Oh no, I say interrupting cow. Interrupting cow. Moo. <laughs> it's a classic. It's a classic. That uh, comedic audience you hear is John Hanna of the Associated Press. John, how are you? I'm doing fine. You know, I met met a man with one leg called Smith once. You did? Yes. You want to know what the other leg was called? What? <laughs> That's the joke. <laughs> anyway, never mind. Well, Andrew, John, my humor just goes. Doesn't John, John will be here all night. Be sure to tip your waitresses, folks. And and Andrew was a bit of a smith to make sure that we could podcast with you. Today. That's a right. Bit of a metal smith fixing a yeah. There's USB. a there's a non-zero chance that the my attempts to fix our USB cable uh, like fry my laptop midway through. So. Uh, if we only get half a podcast posted, that's why. Uh, but but and, you and, are wearing your repairman flannel. That's true. That doesn't really translate well with audio, though. If you're able to listen to this podcast, it's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> it is. Well, and and we have a lot to talk about today. We did not podcast. Frosty came back, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> We're never going to get to the actual substance I, of the podcast. Well, We're well, just going to well, tell well, jokes well, the we, whole we, time. We, we, we can say that uh, Republicans are a little frosty over who is leading the highway patrol. Yes, we could say that. I thought we were going to start with leadership. Nope. We're, we're, we're going rogue. We're going to start with uh, renewed debate this week over the Kansas Highway Patrol and Governor Laura Kelly and Superintendent Herman Jones' leadership of the statewide policing agency uh republicans be, be careful about that because if there there have been times in the past where uh, folks have floated the idea of a state police and the n- newly empowered county sheriffs thank you state constitutional amendment uh didn't have never liked that idea so we, we here in kansas we shy away from the state police label statewide law enforcement yes that's good um and uh, a plan floated by Republicans who don't feel that the current leadership is doing a very good job 
would move the agency from its current location under the executive branch to potentially being under Attorney General Chris Kobach, or at least giving the Attorney General the power to appoint the superintendent, uh, have that hiring and firing power. And Jason, what are some of the concerns, complaints, uh, contention over what is going on at the Highway Patrol? Well, they're a little bit twofold. Uh, There is a shortage of state troopers. And uh, for the Republicans who want, you know, to run on public safety and back the blue and have good funding for public safety and enough law enforcement officers on the streets. That is a big concern of theirs. But there are also allegations of mismanagement uh, at the top of the highway patrol. The uh, superintendent is the subject of lawsuits. Uh, Sexual harassment is an allegation. Uh, Wrongful termination uh, is alleged. Yeah, there there are numerous culture complaints, kind of the, the... precipitating lawsuit filed in federal court uh, in late 2020, I believe, was from a group of female employees who alleged a hostile work environment. There also was a lawsuit uh, that actually, I think, preceded that one from some male majors who say they were fired, uh, retaliated against for trying to help those women file HR complaints. Uh, there since have been other, uh, at least one other lawsuit that kind of also gets at that retaliation claim. There are broad uh, allegations that the culture is poor and untenable, and that that's the reason why Jason mentioned we have a shortage of troopers. Troopers and, are leaving and not wanting to join up like they used to. And Highway Patrol leadership contends that it has everything to do with pay, or most everything to do with pay, and nothing or little to do with the negative publicity and uh, alleged workplace uh, culture issues. Well, and um, well, and, and Gover- Governor Laura Kelly, uh, just real quick, has stood by Herman Jones, we should say. She's called yeah. him, quote, the right man for the job. Uh, the, the superintendent, Herman Jones, the former sheriff of Shawnee County. Go ahead, and John. And Jason, what is the argument for moving this what what does moving this under the attorney general solve other than obviously probably a new leader uh, it strikes me that you could still have the same problem well the, with a different you could have the same problems with a different leader or different problems with a different leader well that that really is the motivation it's they blame all the problems at the highway patrol on the current superintendent and thereby on the governor for keeping the superintendent on the job. Uh, And they believe that if they put the highway patrol under the attorney general, the attorney general can fire the superintendent, replace him with somebody else. And they believe that somebody else will be able to fix the problems. Well, and there is some argument to me, man, also that if you move the highway patrol near the AG, uh, which does exist in some other states, most states do like what Kansas does, where they have their statewide law enforcement agency or state police under the executive branch. But moving the highway patrol in with the KBI makes a certain degree of sense. 
The uh, attorney general is the top cop in Kansas. Uh, well, actually, Kansas the top has, prosecutor, uh, and that uh, and and that raises the question of whether you want the prosecutor running the investigative arm or whether you want the investigative arm independent of the prosecutor. But we kind of already have that because we have two statewide law enforcement agencies in the Kansas Bureau of Investigation uh, is already under the attorney general and the attorney general appoints the director of the KBI. And on the attorney general's website, it says that he's the top law enforcement officer in the state. Well, and the interesting thing about this, so obviously any bill, if it comes to fruition, I think it's safe to say no matter what, we're getting legislative hearings on the state of affairs at the Highway Patrol. Any bill moving the Highway Patrol, changing its leadership, would of course need to be uh, uh, reviewed by the governor. She will almost certainly veto it. But there is kind of some rumblings that they might, uh, legislators might try and push this through as a budget proviso, which could get a lot messier because depending on how it's worded, Funding for the Highway Patrol could be tied into, you know, where it winds up living, which would be an interesting outcome, and maybe we'll wind up in court. I don't know. It. it, it well, but generally, generally not though. Generally, you have a line item that says Kansas Highway Patrol, an amount state general fund, and then the proviso is attached but the proviso is a separate thing that can be vetoed i mean the question would be whether republicans would have two-thirds majorities in both houses to override any form of a veto and impose this change um i mean there's been no there's been no discussion of any legislative action against herman jones over his leadership, for example, impeachment. Um, you know, the, the standards for impeaching a state official are pretty vague. Um, and I, we've not heard any suggestion that legislators would try to pursue that path. Who was it that performed the external and or third-party investigation into the matter was it legislative research or a post audit or a law firm uh, because there was some kind of state i thought it was a law firm it, and it it did not substantiate the but wasn't it didn't the governor's office release the summary of those results that's my recollection is is that the governor's office actually announced what the results were and i i think they found no wrongdoing but but it would just be difficult i think to impeach him uh without i mean with these lawsuits ongoing uh sure you, you don't have a proven set of facts at this point well and these are all civil cases so what what you're gonna the standard is a I think a preponderance of the evidence as opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt which is the standard in a criminal trial but the thing that that strikes me is that there have not particularly been I mean there have been discussions and budget discussions and uh, committees that deal broadly with law enforcement but there actually haven't been what amounts to a legislative investigation I mean not a you know not a committee it, it there have been several legislative investigations and, you know, sometimes they form a special committee, um, you know, 
even to the point of giving the committee the power to subpoena people and documents. They did that back, oh gosh, 30 years ago, maybe, maybe a little more than 30 years ago when they were investigating problems with uh, investments in the CAPERS, the Public Employees Retirement System, uh, the NUS fuss led to a special House committee um, that that investigated uh, the NUS fuss. Former Chief Justice Lawton NUS had lunch with it. He was then just a, he was then a justice. The school funding lawsuit was a school funding lawsuit was pending. I think this was. 2004 2005 he had lunch uh, with a couple of prominent state senators and they uh, it, apparently they provided just some general background uh, uh, information about school funding or something like that uh, it was uh, it, I think he was admonished by the court for doing it um, and conservative Republicans launched, an investigation to look into this. At one point, the House committee was talking about trying to force senators to come in and testify. And of course, they resisted because it wasn't their chamber. So I mean, uh, the, getting I'm getting off track here. But the point is, if the, the legislature does have the power to set up an investigating committee, but again, we've not heard any hint of that. So it, it feels like they're wanting to see how the litigation plays well, out. Andrew, there, while it's not a guarantee that this could go away, there is one clear, obvious way that would make a lot of the fuss go away. Yeah. Republicans say if the superintendent resigns, steps down, which is not outside the realm of possibility, we've seen at least two cabinet members in in the governor's cabinet say they're not going to be back for a second term, uh, they would lose their appetite for moving the highway patrol. It's not a step they they profess to want to take, but they think that the leadership well, really does that, require that a change. Raises, that doesn't, doesn't that raise an interesting question? Is it a, is it a good move administratively to move an agency under another public official because you don't like the current superintendent, you don't believe he's doing a good job. You, what, whatever the reason is, is that is that the way to solve it? Is to just move it to another uh, another agency? I mean, obviously they believe it will be because they think. Uh, Attorney General Chris Kobach, Attorney General-elect at this point, would essentially fire Herman Jones and bring in somebody else. But then in 20 years, when there's another issue with the highway patrol, you know, and all these legislators are standing around going, well, how did how did it get over there as opposed to here? Um, well, Attorney General-elect Chris Kobach has made news recently over the other statewide law enforcement agency, the KBI. Yeah, what happened there? Uh, he has selected his new KBI director, the the former current, I mean, the former KBI director, current still, I guess, uh, Kirk Thompson, who has been there for 12 years. 11 uh, years. 11 years, basically the entire time. Almost 12 years. Yeah. Al almost the full tenure of... Uh, current Attorney General Derek Schmidt uh, is retiring. Uh, and Tony Mativi, the former uh, primary opponent of Chris Kobach, 
is being appointed director of KBI. And his background is as a federal prosecutor. He was a, uh, a, a federal prosecutor in Kansas for more than two decades. Um, he handled their terrorism and homeland security cases, led that unit. Um, yep. You know, at one point for about five years, he was the lead prosecutor in the uh, case of the the uh, man accused of bombing the USS Cole in Yemen. And I think 2000, if I'm remembering, I think 17 sailors were killed. And that uh, that case has not gone to trial. It's been um, it's a military commission and there are all kinds of issues about military commissions, whether that's the proper place, uh, do and conflict. It's just procedurally, it's just very, I'll put it this way, it's just very complicated. And so it has not gotten to trial. But in the Republican primary, Tony Mativi was regarded as uh, respected by law enforcement yes. and prosecutors. And Chris Kobach chose to bring him on uh, to lead the KBI, though Tony Mativi's background is not in law enforcement itself. It's kind of an interesting move just because it's one that's been praised. I think Mativi has been praised by, by many folks as a competent choice to run the KBI. I think uh, some Democrats would argue that uh, Attorney General like Kobach's record before does not necessarily project competence. Uh, but it certainly, I think, maybe throws down the gauntlet as to, um, you know, at least to kind of establish a baseline, maybe the kind of people that, that the attorney general elect is going to try and bring in. Uh, it also raises interesting questions, I think, about um, Mativi got a lot of flack for staying in the primary uh, alongside Senator Kelly Warren, Kobach's main rival. It's kind of interesting that that the end game here is a, a job in the Kobach administration. Well, and and of course the the KBI director that that not position that nomination has to be confirmed by the state senate, and which would go through the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is led by, senate by senator Kelly, Kelly Warren. Warren. So we we will find out if there are any lingering feelings from the primary, any issues that anybody sees with that appointment nobody has said much at all right now so it could you know it could go very smoothly and no problem or who knows well as john alluded we're getting close to the legislative session Indeed. and it's uh, less than a month away it's coming very quickly perhaps. like a barreling train <laughs> Perhaps too quickly, yes. Because uh, we didn't podcast last week, we didn't get a chance to talk you about... You were in Spain. I was in Spain. And you're our technical podcast whiz. <laughs> so, you know, I, I could have called in and said hola, but instead we're we, we we're going to play catch up now with legislative leadership elections. We're yes. going to have a new set of leaders in the House. Why don't we start on the Republican side? They have the supermajority. So we'll we'll go first with them, Jason. What uh, there are going to be some familiar faces in leadership, uh, uh, at least familiar faces in new roles, but also some new faces in new yeah, roles. We we went into by the time you listen to this, it will be two Mondays ago. But we went into Monday with 
really only one certainty, one foregone conclusion, and that was that House Majority Leader Dan Hawkins, a Republican from Wichita, was going to be the next Speaker of the House. Yes. Uh, There was no real opposition within his own party, but there was, for a short bit, a... uh, plan from Boog Heiberger, a Lawrence Democrat, to... Uh, he floated the idea, let's put yeah, it that way. Yeah, that he would put up a challenge that would have no realistic chance of winning, but it would give him a platform to make points that he wanted to make. And uh, Dan Hawkins, allegedly, uh, he did not deny this, uh, threatened that he would... Uh, strip Democrats of the power to appoint their own committee we, we, members. Uh, so Democrats relented. We we should note that the tradition, and it's been ongoing at least since I've been here, so it's pretty well established that um, while because the House Speaker and the Speaker pro tem are mentioned in the state constitution, the entire House has to vote on them. Since I've been here, uh, that has been a mere formality. The Republicans say who their choice for speaker is, the whole House goes, has a voice vote, and that's it. Um, What Boog Heiberger was proposing was that the Democrats nominate him and then, therefore, there would be a vote. And it's, you know, it's 85 Republicans and 40 Democrats. So to to be elected speaker in theory, uh, Boog Heiberger would have to pick up 23 Republican votes. Ain't going to happen. And he admitted he didn't really want to be speaker. What he wanted to do was raise some questions about the way the House operates and build pressure for rules changes. And he said that by publicizing uh, this uh, threat to strip Democrats of their power, it made his point better than anything he could have. Well, and and the, the point is, in exchange for not contesting speakers' races, for example, in Congress, in the U.S. House, the person who is designated as a minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries of New York now, um actually gets nominated to be Speaker of the House. On the Republican side, the minority leader the previous two years, Kevin McCarthy from California, um, is in line to be Speaker. But of course, Republicans have a pretty narrow margin. I think it's 222 seats to 213. But at any rate, he's Kevin McCarthy's got a problem on his right. He's got a hard right faction that does not want him as speaker. Well, if he can't get to 218 votes, a majority in the U.S. House, and the Democrat can't get to 218 votes, uh, that creates this interesting situation. And uh, according to New York Times, Donald Trump has been lobbying on uh, Kevin McCarthy's behalf, but the the time last time story I read about it suggested that it, it hadn't gone very far. Anyway, the point is that's not the way it works in Kansas. Well, there and, are, there are always like uh, I think fanfic esque scenarios sure. floated where and modern the, the ex- Republicans and Democrats. The point is, Democrats. in exchange for Democrats being quiet in the Speaker's race, always the minority leader gets to pick which Democrats go on which committees. The in theory, the Speaker could just do it on his or her own. And and that would be the end of it, because all the in the House, 
the power is vested in the speaker. And what Dan Hawkins told us was that when Republicans, some Republicans got wind of this thing that Boog Heiberger was proposing, they were saying, well, if they're going to do that, and his argument with us was, we had a deal, and if you can get rid of half the deal, you got to go all the way um, and, and just go back, presumably, to the way it was even before I started, you know, when the, the first uh, amphibians crawled from the muck of the hot sea four billion years ago, go back to the way it was. So we, we gave you the biggest drama of leadership elections. Yeah. Uh, but, but you were mentioning the fan fiction, right? There have been at times when the margins between the two parties are a lot closer and the speaker has some political baggage, some opposition in the Republican Party. There's, they're on and off over the years, there have been talk of Democrats forming an alliance with, say, moderate Republicans and electing a speaker. And, and of course, it never goes anywhere because the issue is who is the chair of which committee? What, does, what do the Democrats get and what do the moderate Republicans get? Well, so on Republican leadership elections, you should uh, mar- start your tally with uh, Dan Hawkins as one person from the Wichita, South Central Kansas area. Uh, and you won't mark it for the next one, but you should see after that how it goes. Uh, the number two, at least politically power-wise, position in the House is... Uh, the House Majority Leader. Uh, we had three Republicans running for that, and we almost had it be somebody from the Wichita area. Uh, but it did not end up that way. We had Chris Croft of Johnson County who yes. won after, what was it, two rounds of ballots? Mm-hmm. And he was, of course, the chair of the House Redistricting Committee Um I'm sorry, whenever I hear his name, I think of that 90s band, Criss Cross, make you jump. They had a hit called Jump, never mind. Uh, um, uh, basically, the song was, Criss Cross is going to make you jump, 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 jump. It had it, about three words in it. it. it um, if, if it's not jump around, then Andrew's not going to know it. That's true. Yes. Uh, but Chris Croft bested Sean Tarwater, yeah. a Republican also from Johnson County, and then Susan Humphreys, a Republican from Wichita. Uh, Chris Croft, you may know him from the greatest hits album of Redistricting. Yes. Yes. Uh, we just went with the fairest plan, Jason. That That was what he said repeatedly about the uh, very controversial redistricting, congressional redistricting. And uh, just like he was during redistricting, he did not uh, give us very many details about his plans for being a House Majority Leader when we talked with him after. I, I think, you know, the phrase usually is close to the vest. I think in his case, whatever his plans are, they're, they're tucked under the undershirt where not even he can see them. So, you know. <laughs> uh now, there is a different position in the House that is ceremonially the number two position. Yes. Uh, Speaker pro tempore. Uh, that had, what, two or three rounds of yeah. uh, of voting. Uh, that went to Derby Republican Blake Carpenter. 
Derby being south of Wichita. Yes. Uh, and he was not up here last year, which would have been my, he, what, which was my he first was, year here. There was, he was doing military service, yeah, National right? Guard. Mm-hmm. National Guard military service. So uh, he came back, and now he's House Speaker Pro Tem, kind of a, a younger, I mean, you know, and anybody under the age of 45 is young to me. So a uh, kind of a younger lawmaker who's been kind of a bit on the rise when he's been here. So, uh, of course, a conservative. So that will be interesting to watch. Sorry, I was trying to find out who he uh, ran against. Yeah, I, I'm... Stephen Owens. Stephen Owens, that's right. Oh, and uh, I believe Adam Smith and Kyle Hoffman. Uh, so it was either Republicans had their choice of a rural Western Kansas uh, speaker pro tem or a uh, central, South Central Kansas uh, speaker pro tem. Yes. And then after that, we had uh, the assistant majority leader position, and that went to Rep. Les Mason of McPherson. Uh, that was unanimous. Uh, he did the job last session, too. Yeah. So. And there goes another South Central Kansas position. Uh, and then Majority Whip went to Susan Estes, a Republican from Wichita. Uh, she beat out Barb Wassinger from Wife Hayes. of Congressman Ron Estes, by the way. Very, very, very uh, long active in the Republican Party down there. Um, as a matter of fact, in his statewide campaign, she was probably a huge asset to him because she uh, has been uh, very well connected within the Republican Party. And uh, then Majority Caucus Chair went to Christy Williams from Augusta, (laughs) uh, a Butler County suburb of Wichita, and she beat out Patrick Penn, a Republican from Wichita. Uh, So if you've noticed, there is a very Wichita area flair to house republicans and uh when you jump over to the senate which did not have leadership elections because it was not up for re-election this year uh the senate president ty masterson is from andover another wichita suburb and the majority leader larry alley from winfield and part of his district stretches into sedgwick county So you can cut that out. Um, well, and th- and that's interesting. So South Central Kansas, the Wichita area, has a good deal of influence. A good deal of influence on the majority party. Yes. Uh, and before this year, they also had the minority party uh, leadership position. Tom Sawyer in the House. Uh, but for those of us who live in Topeka, we now have a local back in leadership uh, Representative Vic Miller, a Democrat from Topeka. And that was a fascinating race to watch. Uh, one of the things to note is that Vic Miller actually, his legislative service, it's about 13 years over three stints, I think, maybe, in the House. Uh, his It actually started before I got here. I He may be the only legislator who can say that. Um in the late 70s, 1978, I think he was elected to the House, served about six years there, uh, lost a state Senate race, then went and worked for the Department of Reve- Revenue as the director of the division that handles property tax stuff, uh, was a was and perhaps still is a power in local politics, served on the city council, the county commission, was a municipal judge, 
when Laura Kelly was elected governor, he was appointed to her seat, served two years there, and then ran for the House again. And he uh, did a lot of work this past election cycle to help Democratic candidates in their respective races. And what was interesting was that his opponent in the minority leader's race was Brandon Woodard uh, from Johnson County, uh, one of the younger members of the House. Yeah, a bit of a generational Generational change. And of course, that that was interesting because uh, Woodard is uh, one of the first openly LGBTQ lawmakers uh, in in Kansas history. But the vote on that was 21 to 19 amongst the Democrats. So you really had a sense that they were really split about the direction. You know, Vic is what, 71 or 72, if I'm recalling? I do not know. He's in, uh, he's in his early 70s, I think. And Woodard is low 30s. And so you had this really interesting uh, dichotomy of whether you wanted a really young leader, at, you know, arguably to position yourself for the future, or whether you wanted to go with more of a state house veteran. And and I believe, John, it was you who asked him, who asked uh, Representative Miller after the elections about what this says about the future of the party and his response was something like well i wish i was younger too yeah um and the other interesting thing to note is democrats actively didn't choose someone from johnson county which in recent elections has really been their only area of growth it netted them a couple seats this last time around uh, a couple of the uh, other positions uh do have but not their number two position. Not their number two. Yeah, That's Valdinia Wynn. Yep. From Kansas City, she beat out Jason Probst from Hutchinson, who was the current uh, assistant minority leader, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we had Stephanie Clayton, a former Republican turned Democrat uh, from Overland Park. Park. She was reelected minority whip over Jared Owsley from Merriam, also a Johnson County City uh, and then we had Barbara Ballard from Lawrence, who was reelected as caucus chair. Jerry Stogstill from Prairie Village is now agenda chair. And Christine, Christina Haswood from Lawrence is now policy chair. Well, and, and that's interesting because the policy chair's job is to help develop a policy agenda to sort of guide that process. And Christina Haswood is, again, one of the newer members, uh, probably more on the progressive side of the party. So that's that's going to be pretty interesting to watch, that, that dynamic. And, of course, <clears throat> there's this roiling debate in the Kansas Democratic Party about, you know, the fact that the party is very, very weak in most rural areas. You look at, for example, uh, southeastern Kansas, uh, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Girard, that because of the mining and the uh, kind of ethnic Catholic uh, population, there used to be a Democratic, at least a pretty good Democratic area. Um, When I started covering the legislature, you had Democrats. I mean, you had Democrats representing that area in both chambers, and now not. But for those of you keeping track, that means one position from Topeka, 
two from Lawrence, two from Johnson County, one from Wyandotte County for Democratic So leadership. all from Northeast Kansas. Yeah. And previously, the top two positions were both from South Central. Yeah. Geography. Always interesting. Geography is destiny, some geographers would argue. I would agree with that. I think that's a, that's a good I, point. I, I think dynamic-wise for the two house majority and minority uh, parties, uh, for Republicans, it'll be interesting to watch how they work with their Senate counterparts. And for Democrats, it'll be interesting to see if they are successful in trying to push Laura Kelly out of the middle of the road into the left yeah, side. Yeah, uh, Representative Miller made this interesting comment that, uh, what, you don't you don't want to be in the middle of the road because you get run over? What, is that what he said? Something uh, uh, like that. Yep. Uh, and if you want to read that quote and more, uh, Andrew, where can they find our work? <laughs> that was a good segue. What did we want to talk oil spill real quick? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very quickly, because we, we don't want to uh, uh, burden everyone's eardrums. But probably the biggest news this week, not in legislative world uh, and last week, was the uh, oil spill in Washington County. John, yes. You want to run that down for us real quick? Yes. It, it is the Keystone Pipeline uh uh, system. It's run by TC Energy, a Canadian-based company. It goes from Canada down through the Dakotas and then through Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, all the way to the Gulf. And, and to clarify, this is not the Keystone XL pipeline. The XL was going to be another branch of that pipeline. Uh, it eventually, uh, it, back and forth between the Trump and the Biden administrations, Biden canceled the permit and the company yeah. Yeah. dropped the, the, it. The XL did not get built, but there is a Keystone, no XL. Oh, and it takes this thick, heavy uh, Canadian tar, tar sand oil from Canada down to the Gulf Coast and into Illinois. Uh, in Washington County, uh, kind of three or four miles east of Washington, the county seat, town of about 1,100, out in a pasture, uh, there was a pipe rupture, and it spilled 14,000 barrels of oil. One barrel is about enough to fill a bathtub. So uh, imagine 14,000 bathtubs, nine-tenths of an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Or about the, about the size of like one of those big water uh, tanks that you see driving Or a hot cities. air balloon. Or 588,000 gallons. Yes. Uh, quite, quite. A, it was the largest onshore U.S. oil spill in nine years. Um, it's the largest on the Keystone system, larger than all the other 22 spills on the system combined since the system began operating in 2010. And environmentalists and pipeline safety activists, advocates will tell you that one of the issues here is that, and I, I can't remember the chemical name for it, but this is a very heavy crude. And so... And it, it, historically, it's proved difficult to clean up. Very difficult. It, it is... Uh, I think it's extra. It has an extraordinary viscosity. I think the National it, Academy has peanut uh, butter was the consistency that it was described um, as. Yeah, they the 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 National uh, the one of the issues is it can get heavier than water in sink. Um, I talked to somebody with a pipeline safety trust and advocacy group out of uh, 
Washington State, and the guy said, you know, in some cases, you could be down to scrubbing rocks in the creek bed. We don't know that that is the case yet. Um, They're using these huge trucks with basically giant wet vacs to suck the oil out, oil and water mixtures out, and they've taken out a bunch of uh, soil uh, enough soil to fill 25,000 bath, 24,000 bathtubs. I mean, I like the bathtub analogy, but a lot of, a lot of soil, a lot of water and oil mixed together. So most of the pipeline was back operating as of a couple of days ago, the portion from Canada to Steel City, Nebraska, very close to the Nebraska-Kansas border, and then from Cushing on Oklahoma on south. It's just this stretch in Kansas and northern Oklahoma that's still shut down. Well, and we should say cleanup efforts have been slow going so far, although we got revised numbers. I want to say it was something on the order of 4,000 gallons of oil and 7,000 gallons of that oil-water mixture have been cleaned up to date, but uh, don't quite quote me on that. Um, But suffice to say, this is going to take a little while. Uh, Varying messages have been conveyed, but... uh, Well, what's interesting is the Democrat who is in charge of the subcommittee, the Transportation Subcommittee on Pipelines, I think, uh, tweeted that he noticed and was watching. And, you know, there's uh, the Pipeline Safety Act uh, has to be renewed periodically and uh, funding for pipeline safety programs, and that it's about due. So that could be a topic. In, in Congress. In Congress. In addition to that, some Democratic legislators have noticed that uh, a decade or so ago plus, Kansas did a lot of things, property tax breaks, that sort of thing, to incentivize companies to build pipelines, transmission lines, Uh, power plants, all of it in Kansas on the idea that energy was going to go nationwide and you could have a power plant in Kansas that sent energy out through the grid all over the place and we the idea was we wanted pipelines to come through kansas for the construction jobs and the operations jobs and of course the problem that critics saw with the keystone xl pipeline one of the big problems was they were worried that it would rupture and foul the water so we should say Something on the order of seventy dead fish and yeah, how many I think dead, four mammals? dead mammals? Yeah, but I've, we do know that one beaver made it out alive. So well, and, you're and at, we should be clear that according to the company, the EPA, and uh, the the pipeline safety arm of the U.S. Department of Transportation, they were able to contain the spill so that it didn't get into it's along a creek, Mill Creek, didn't get into the bigger waterways or affect drinking waters so and nobody was evacuated although if you talk to local residents i know you all did i mean they could smell it in town four or five miles well and some people had to move cattle you know they had land that backed up to this had to move cattle um and you know that's not insignificant you know some of that land's not going to probably be able to be used even if it gets cleaned up because you have to kind of dig up the yeah. The land and then re well and, I, and I, I had a local farmer who grass. lives along the road where everybody was you know all the trucks were moving in he said that he'd just the day before he'd finished 
putting up an electric fence. And when I caught him in the afternoon, he'd just taken it down. He said he took it down, rolled it up, and put it away because he didn't want those trucks catching it and dragging it across the field. So definitely something to watch in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, something we're we're not used to in Kansas. Um, I. I thought i guess if i covered an oil spill it would be if i was covering louisiana state government and politics but uh, definitely a, a big news item here and uh, across the country and internationally and internationally yes and if you are wanting to read about that uh, uh in kansas nationally or internationally or, or highway patrol or leadership elections or the kbi uh, you can go to cjonline.com or on Twitter. I am at Jason underscore Tid. I am at Andrew Ball, B-A-H-L. And uh, CJ Online has a handle as well, at CJ Online. That's if none of us get banned from Twitter. Uh, if you want to be sure, like us on Facebook and Instagram as well. John, where can they find I, your uh, work? For now, I, at, I'm on Twitter at APJDHanna, um, and I, I stay out of the great debate over Twitter. Um, and uh, I am www.apnews.com backslash. A hand movement there. Kansas, you can find my stuff there. And it's getting close to Christmas. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. It's beginning to look a lot what, what, like what, Christmas. Do you have a favorite Christmas song? I like some of the more religious ones. I like like Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Yeah, that's good. And Joy to the World. Joy to the World. Um, Silent Night. Mm-hmm. First Away in a Manger. You have, uh, you, there used to be an old country singer named Kitty Wells, and I have a version of Away in a Manger, and it's wonderful because she has her twang. Oh, um, Holy Night really gives yeah. me the feels. Ooh, that's that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. but but I've I've started listening to uh, some pop country, I some country Christmas and some pop country on the Alexa at home. Well, and then of course there's Bruce Springsteen and Santa Claus is coming to town. Oh, you better watch. Yeah, it. Though, though I think Mariah Carey is still the number one. All I want for Christmas is you. Uh, and U two has a good version of Merry Christmas, Baby, Please Come Home. I'm not going to do that one. I can't do Bono. Who can do Bono? I think that's the Andrew. reason I shouldn't do Bono. Is... Bono is Bono. Um, <laughs> I don't know how we quite got yeah, here. Yeah, how did we segue if, into if, pop if, cast, pop music cast. If you are it's on Spotify fault. and you are sick of Christmas music... Uh, and I am so sick of Christmas music. Oh, uh, well, John, I got the solution for you. You can go over and listen to back episodes of Chillin' in the State House. They are, are quite entertaining, folks. <laughs> if you are going out of state for the holidays, yes. it's the perfect road trip way it to fill is. up the entire drive. It is. <laughs> I, I did an entire 22 hours of driving listening to back pod back episodes of chilling in the state house I, even when i'm driving at 3 a.m to kci tomorrow i'll be listening to wait why are you driving at 3 a.m to kci I'm on the first flight out of kci wow yeah it's do rough. they still have flights in kci yeah kansas city sure yeah i mean they're building a new airport terminal on oh there. yeah one that. big instead of those kci is like the worst airport to be stuck at it's it's great 
flying in and flying out, getting in, getting to your plane, all that. But if, you know, there's like a massive snowstorm and you're stuck there, not very good. I am going to say Miami was worse to be stuck up for me. Really? I've not been to the Miami airport. Yeah. (laughs) I have a fondness for O'Hare because I've been there many times, but they have sushi in O'Hare. Fancy sushi. It's good. So, see, we do it all here at Chillin' in the State House. We give you dining recommendations, music recommendations. Travel tips. Yeah, we got it all. Um, Jason? Andrew? John? Andrew? Jason? Happy holidays to you both. Uh, the best gift that I get in my life really is is the people, and this podcast drives Aww. home that, that we have some good people down here in the State House basement. Yes. Uh, we wish all of you safe travels if you're traveling. Have happy holidays. We'll be back at you uh, before the new year. Don't worry. We'll, we'll, we can ring in the new year with children in the state house. But until then, have a good one, y'all. going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.